Yes. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Freddie Mercury, lead singer of Queen, trailblazing songwriter, gay icon, one of the greatest rock and roll frontmen of all time. But this is not about Freddie Mercury. This is about the love of his life, one-time fiancé, and heir to his massive fortune, Mary Austin. This story is about a girl. That dark-haired guy with the overbite was back. She could see him lurking behind one of the clothes racks. He'd been coming in for months now, watching her, glancing away as soon as their eyes met. Never bought anything, barely spoke to her. But she liked his look. He wasn't exactly a stranger. He was in the outer edges of her social orbit in London's music scene friend of a friend. She'd seen him around with guys she knew. Brian, a guitar-playing astrophysicist she'd gone out with a few times. And Brian's mate Roger, who played drums and sold secondhand clothes from a stall in Kensington Market. They were in a band together, called Smile. It was 1969, and London was full of blokes like that. Young men peacocking in loud prints and heeled boots, waiting for something extraordinary to happen to them. And everyone... Everyone was in a band. They all vied for spots at a constellation of clubs, 
tiles, blazes, la discotheque, the flamingo, the bag of nails, the scene, the ram jam, the ricky-tick, the glutes cleck, the uppercut, and of course, the marquee. You could go to shows even if you didn't have money, which was good because no one had any money. Mary went to shows when she could, though music was something that she never shared with her parents. Both of them were deaf and used sign language. Her father worked as a wallpaper trimmer, and her mother had been a domestic maid before she died young. To help her family make ends meet, Mary worked as a shop girl at Biba, selling clothes to those who already made it. Paul McCartney came in sometimes, and so did Mick Jagger. To be a Biba shop girl, you had to have style. You had to be beautiful. To Mary, a girl from Battersea, the store was glamorous. It was also the place that made her feet hurt at the end of the day. She was only 19, and she had always been poor. As far as she knew, she always would be. That was her life, day in, day out. She was working the floor when he appeared beside her. She looked down and saw that his nails were painted black, something that she'd never noticed about him before. No, she couldn't go out tonight, she said. She was trying to play it cool. How about the next night, then? She said yes. He took her to see Mott the Hoople at the Marquee Club in Soho, the most 1969 gig that could be imagined. They were a lot alike, it turned out. Though Freddie could conjure up a self-confident front bordering on arrogance, at heart they were both shy. Both had learned English young, but as a second language. Her first language was British Sign, and his was Gujarati. His real name was Farouk Basara, and he was from Zanzibar, where he lived with his family until he was 18, but he didn't talk much about his childhood or the violent political revolution from which they'd fled, and he never let anyone call him Farouk. He was always Freddy. He had a mane of black hair and an odd, long, bony face, but somehow he was handsome. Even the overbite was a virtue, as he pointed out, making a face and showing his teeth. I was born with four additional incisors, he told her. It gives me more range when I sing. He'd been to art school, he told her, and he loved to draw, loved fashion design, but now he wanted to be a musician. She asked if he was in a band. Not now, he told her. But there was a look in his eye, like he was making plans. Later, she'd tell people that it took her three years to really fall in love, but it only took six months for them to move in together. They found a bedsit where they shared the bathroom and the kitchen with another couple. They could only afford one pair of curtains, so they hung them in the bedroom. He met her father. She met his parents. She kept working at Biba. Kept making art and looking for a band. By the next summer, 1970, the lead singer of Brian and Roger's band Smile had gotten tired of waiting for something to happen and quit. Freddie, having spent months hanging around the band, seized the opportunity. And one of the first things he suggested as its newly minted frontman was to change their name to Queen. Why Queen? Mary remembered asking him. Because it's outrageous, darling, Freddie said. He changed his own name, too. Farouk Bosara was finally gone for good. Instead, he took on the name of a god. For the rest of his life and in the world's memory, he would be Freddie Mercury. Mary, meanwhile, stayed plain old Mary Austin. It didn't matter. They understood each other. 
She trusted Freddie more than she'd ever trusted another person. She felt like she could see inside of him, see who he really was, no matter what name he called himself. No matter who he was, in public or on stage. And on stage, he was arch, he was flamboyant, he was camp. He outponced every ponce in London and didn't care that everyone thought he was gay. He was casting himself in a role, she thought. He was becoming an actor. And he easily transcended conventional notions of sexuality. Mary was at all of their gigs. She had watched Queen perform so many times, but somehow it never really hit her how good they were, how talented Freddie was. Until one night. The band was playing a showcase at Freddie's old school, Ealing College of Art. There was something in the lines of Freddie's body that night, in his presence on stage, in the swoop of his voice. She'd never seen him like that before. It was as if something he'd been storing up had been let loose. His final metamorphosis. She thought, oh, he's going to be a star. He's on his way. And just as quickly, she thought, he doesn't need me anymore. She felt very calm. At the end of their gig, when he came off stage, a crowd formed around him, his friends, girls who adored him, fans. She watched him trying to talk to everyone, to give a piece of himself to everyone. And she turned and walked away. But then there was a hand on her shoulder. It was Freddie. He ran after her. Where are you going? He asked. She told him she was going home, but he took her hand. He wouldn't let her go. That was when she realized that not only was Freddie going to be a star, but she was going to be a part of it. All of it. Until the end. He asked her to marry him once. It was Christmas, 1973, the same year Queen's first album came out. The same year they played the Marquee Club. He gave her a box. Well, open it, he said. She did. Inside was a smaller box, and then another, and then another. Mary kept opening the boxes one after another until she got to the last one, the smallest one. There was a ring inside. Mary's mind went blank. She didn't understand what was happening. What finger do I put it on, she blurted out. Ring finger, left hand. And then he asked if she would marry him. She said yes. And then... He never really mentioned it again. Once she asked if he wanted children, he told her he'd rather get another cat. Marriage is a term for other people, Freddie would say. We believe in each other. And fuck everybody else. But it so happened that Freddie was fucking everybody else. Mostly, he was fucking men. She could tell he was keeping something from her. She wasn't dumb. And more importantly, she could tell that he felt bad about it. Freddie was more guarded, more irritable. The simple understanding they'd had at first was gone. It was like the ring he'd given her. His true self was hidden now. Boxes inside boxes, layer under layer. He was becoming a man with secrets, a man who was at odds with himself. She didn't know for sure what was going on. Not then but she could guess. I just feel like a noose around your neck, she told him. I think it's time for me to go. In 1975, Queen had their first headlining American tour, their first Japan tour. 
they were being represented by Elton John's manager. And Freddie wrote a song called Lily of the Valley. Years later, Brian May would say he thought the song was about Mary. Freddie's stuff was so heavily cloaked lyrically, but Lily of the Valley was utterly heartfelt. It's about looking at his girlfriend and realizing that his body needed to be somewhere else. Finally, he told her, I think I'm bisexual. No, she said. I don't think you're bisexual, Freddie. I think you're gay. After that, in a way, they became closer than before. There were no secrets between them now. He told her he hadn't thought she'd be supportive of him if she knew he liked men. But I was, she'd say later, because it was a part of himself. You couldn't deny Freddie that right to be at one with himself. She'd always been fascinated with seeing his secret self. And now she could finally see him clearly. They didn't make sense to anyone. There wasn't a name for what they were becoming to each other. Not boyfriend and girlfriend, they'd broken up. Not husband and wife. Not roommates, she'd moved out. But they weren't just friends either. Freddie never made an announcement about his sexuality, and he never spoke to his parents about it. But those closest to him knew. He was free to immerse himself fully in the carnival of gay London. And Mary was there for him. Queen went on tour, playing to stadiums full of fans. Mary went on the road with them. He fell in love. She fell in love. But they never really left each other behind. The 70s gave way to the 80s. Freddie cut his hair and grew a mustache. Mary met a painter named Pierce Cameron and had a son, Richard, by him. Freddie became the child's godfather. For his part, Freddie was living in a mansion with an Irish hairdresser named Jim Hutton. It was a match made in heaven. The gay club, that is. They were as close to married as two men could legally be at the time. They both wore wedding rings and kept at least ten cats. They lived in Freddie's mansion, Garden Lodge, the house that Mary had picked out for him when he'd asked her to find him a refuge. The parties Freddie threw by then were infamous. Stories circulated of fets featuring naked waitstaff and wrestling models, a geek biting heads off live chickens, little people hired to mosey around carrying trays of cocaine on their heads. So when Freddie turned 39, he had to outdo himself. The party he held at Henderson's, a drag club in Munich, would become legendary. There was Freddie, dressed like a king with gold braid on his shoulders and medals pinned to his lapel his thin chest bare to the navel. Jim was at his side in a bedazzled tux. Boy George was holding a burning sparkler. Someone else was wearing nothing but chaps and an ostrich feather sprouting from their ass. A lady in a fur boa flapped her penis in the air. Was that Tina Turner, or was it just a wig? Freddie was to film the whole thing to use in a music video in which he sang about being alone. Mary was there, dressed as a schoolgirl. It was always hard to keep track of Freddie amidst all the insanity. Everyone wanted to talk to him, and whenever they could get a moment, the crowd would always drown her out. And everyone else was too high to have a conversation. Of course, that wasn't the point. It was the energy of these things. She liked the parties he threw, and attended them often. 
She sometimes felt out of her element in them, but she wouldn't have missed them for the world. At some point, she ended up next to Jim Hutton. How's Richard? He asked. Good. Growing up so fast. The conversation seemed to end there. I'm going to find Freddy. He walked off, his face flushed. Just as Jim seemed to disappear into the crowd, Mary saw Freddy approaching her from the other direction. Are you having a good time? Mary nodded. Freddy put his arm around her and flagged down one of his friends with a camera. Let's take a picture. They posed for the photographer. Mary noticed that Jim was watching them. She recognized the look on his face immediately. Peers wore the same one whenever Freddy was around. Mary sighed. Jim didn't have anything to worry about. As much as she still cared about Freddy, it wasn't like that. She looked back at Freddy. He was glowing in the glittering light of a mirror ball in his own brilliance. He was high. Someone said something to him, he threw back his head, showing off those extra teeth as he laughed. This wasn't the man she knew in private, but it wasn't an act either. This is what he loved. All the sex, all the drugs, all the music, all of it. As much as he could take. He loved it as much as he loved Jim. He loved it as much as he loved her. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Two years passed. Queen stayed on top of the world. They were recording new music, selling out stadiums, as big as they'd ever been. And then everything changed. Sunday afternoon, Mary picked up the phone and called Freddy. Jim Hutton was at work cutting people's hair, and Piers would watch Richard. They'd have to do lunch. So they did, outside at Garden Lodge. It was just the two of them, like old times. It was a beautiful day. The sun was out, and they were enjoying it. But something was wrong. Mary had received a phone call from Freddy's doctor just that morning. He tried to contact Freddy a few times and couldn't get a hold of him, and was reaching out to Mary, who remained Freddy's closest proxy. Can you tell him to call me, please? he asked. It's very important. Mary felt a pang of concern. Is everything all right? she asked, figuring if she could at least tell Freddy the reason, he wouldn't put it off. The doctor hesitated. And then, Mary, I'm afraid Freddy has been diagnosed with AIDS. But as Mary looked over at Freddy, it was hard to believe. He seemed so healthy and vibrant. Maybe there was a mistake. Mary hadn't brought up the call yet. As attempts at small talk were met with one-word answers, it weighed on her mind. Give my love to Brian and Raj. I will. How's Deaky? He gave a smile. Same, Freddy replied. I don't think he said a word yesterday. They laughed. They were laughing just like they always used to. Freddy's face tightened and he forced himself to look at her. 
I have something very serious to tell you, I'm afraid. You have AIDS, she said. Freddy's expression froze, but he said nothing. Your doctor told me. Freddy's face then fell, and he went right back to looking at his food. Who else knows about this? No one yet. I still have to tell Brian, Raj, Deaky, Jim, my family, he added, barely audibly. Mary squeezed her eyes shut, trying not to cry. To hear it from him made it more real. Freddie Mercury couldn't have AIDS, because in 1987, that only meant one thing. A death sentence. She took a deep breath, trying to think of something to say to make sense of the million thoughts racing through her mind at once. But the words wouldn't come. Darling, Freddie replied, seemingly reading her mind. It's very important to me that I waste no time having anyone feel sorry for me. Least of all you. Of course, Mary said. After a while, she added, How can I help? Just by being here, darling, Freddie said with a tight smile. He looked out at the garden. It really was a beautiful day, but that only made this seem all the more like a nightmare. He smiled. Mary, this is all going to be yours. All of it. I mean it. She looked at him, confused. What is? This house. Everything. But... But what about your family? Freddy laughed. Oh, don't worry. They'll get something, too. But darling, you were to be my wife. And all of this would have been yours anyway. Mary didn't know what to say. It was all too much to process. Freddy had AIDS. He was going to die. He would leave her everything. Mary, darling... I've got something very important to ask of you. Tell me, she replied, trying without success to fight her tears. I know exactly where I want you to put me. He gave her clear instructions. Mary nodded. She understood. She promised. She wasn't going to let him down. I don't want anyone disturbing me. I just want to rest in peace, he explained. You're the only one I want visiting me. We can still grow old together. Mary stayed with him until Jim came home from work. She said hello to all the cats on her way out, and Freddie told her to bring Richard over again. Mary said that she would. The next few years went by in a haze. As Queen stopped touring, as Freddie's already rare public appearances became less and less frequent, rumors began to circle in the tabloids about his health. He'd been adamant to everyone he told that he did not want to be some AIDS poster boy and swore them all to secrecy. So Brian, Roger, and John flat out denied it when asked, as did Mary, but in the back of her mind was a persistent, nagging thought. Sooner or later, they weren't going to be able to deny it anymore. Every so often, as Freddie got sicker, as the time he could be in the studio became less and less, as even something as simple as wearing clothes started to hurt, the idea would be proposed that he cease recording. Every time, he would refuse. By 1991, Freddie couldn't do much of anything. Mary kept an almost daily vigil at his bedside, fighting past increasingly growing crowds of press, keeping her head low and not answering their questions, all some variations of the same thing. 
Freddy was often asleep when she entered his room. He slept so much now. Careful not to wake him, she'd sit there. He was so gaunt, tired. The beard he'd grown didn't suit him, but he kept it to cover his pockmarked face. It's you, old faithful, he'd say when he noticed her in the room. He'd try to smile, then he'd start coughing again. And then he'd stop. Even coughing was painful now. When he was still able to record, he kept pushing. But it had been months since he'd been in the studio with Queen. The last time, he hadn't been able to finish the song. I'm just tired, darling, he told Brian May. I'll come back and finish next time. But there was no next time. Now, he and Mary would sit in his room and turn on tapes of his old performances. One afternoon, Freddie requested one in particular. Mary put it in the VCR. She sat next to him and they watched. It was dusk at Wembley Stadium, July 1986. Not Live Aid, but their concert the year after. This time, they had the stadium all to themselves. First, they saw the crowd. Then, Brian May, sitting with an acoustic guitar. As he began to play, Mary took a deep breath. She knew the song well. As Freddie walked out, he seemed, well, like royalty. Except for that ridiculous Betty Boop shirt, but that was par for the course with him. He only needed to sing one line of Love of My Life, the ballad he'd written for their seminal album, A Night at the Opera, and throw his hands up into the air for everyone else to sing. As he conducted the audience with his hands, the 72,000 people there that night sang an entire verse. Then, he picked it up, singing about the endurance of love and growing old together. As the song neared its penultimate verse, Mary felt Freddie's cold hand grasp hers and squeeze it tightly, like she was a life raft keeping him afloat in the middle of the ocean. And yet, there was the slightest twinkle in his eye. On the TV, Freddie sang. Mary looked over at Freddie lying beside her now. She saw how weak he was, how tired, how far he'd fallen and through no fault of his own. It wasn't fair. But it seemed to make him happy to remember what it was like when things were good. To think I used to be so handsome, Freddie said. Mary stifled her tears. She had to leave the room so he didn't see her cry. Less than 24 hours after finally issuing a public statement confirming his diagnosis, Freddie Mercury died on November 24, 1991, from complications of AIDS. He was 45 years old. His funeral three days later was attended by his family, friends, and the other members of Queen. Mary eventually moved her family into Garden Lodge and for the most part left things just as Freddie had always kept them. There was happiness in the birth of her son, Jamie. Still, it was a struggle just to get out of bed most days. She felt like she and Freddie had had a marriage and he'd been everything to her, apart from her boys. Even though she had everything now, the house, the money, the recording royalties, two amazing sons, and would never have to worry about money for the rest of her life, the world seemed so much emptier without him. In 1993, Mary told the staff at Garden Lodge she was going out for a facial. When she left, she had his ashes with her. And when she came back, 
they were gone. In spite of enormous pressure, Mary would never tell anyone where she'd left the ashes. She tried to remember the good times. And even though she always wished they'd had more time, they had so many beautiful memories together. New Queen fans emerged every day, ones who hadn't been alive when they were just starting out. And Freddie would have loved that. Offstage, he'd been shy and quiet and stumbled over his words. And in general, he preferred his cats to people. It was on stage, singing to tens of thousands of people that he truly came alive, became himself. Mary had seen his potential from the beginning, from the day they'd first met to those days they'd spent smushed into that tiny flat, when Queen recorded in the middle of the night, and she'd kept on at a job she couldn't stand. She'd kept going because she believed in him, because she knew how much music meant to him. Even in the early days of playing in pubs, at universities, when everyone was packed shoulder to shoulder, all standing and trying not to spill their drinks, Freddie performed like he was trying to connect with the person in the very back row of a stadium. The one who heard Queen was in town and bought the only ticket that they could afford. I'm not going to be a rock star, he'd once told her. I'm going to be a legend. Mary didn't know how many people had taken him seriously before. But she sure did. Once he became a star, Freddie Mercury was beloved by millions. And there were many characters in and out of the Queen's story along the way. But none of them were with him back in that cheap London flat. And this isn't about them. This is about Mary Austin, who believed in Freddie Bolsara. This is About a Girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. That's DoubleElvis.com.